Jesus is a genius. I don't know how often we think of him in that term, but Jesus, while on earth, demonstrated a level of brilliance, knowledge, and wisdom that is unparalleled in human history. One of the ways he displayed this brilliance was with his uncanny ability to tell a story. Jesus could spin a parable that had the spontaneity of being off the cuff, and yet the complexity of a well-thought-out novel. One of these stories is given to us in Luke chapter 16. Today I continue a sermon series that's entitled, The Making of a Disciple. This morning I want us to focus our attention on the topic of generosity. Now before you tune me out and shut me down, and think to yourself, well this is just another example of a preacher talking about money. Let me tell you from the very outset, I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I am not trying to get anything out of you. But by God's grace, I'm hoping that he will put something into you. Jesus had a knack of talking about money. In fact, uh, he talked about money pretty much more than anything else. And it wasn't because Jesus was a fundraiser. No, Jesus talked about money because he knew the human heart. And we have a propensity to make our goods into our gods. So Jesus frequently talked about money. So this morning, I want you to focus on this aspect of generosity because I think it's a tool that God uses to fashion us into the disciples he wants us to be. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 16, I'll begin at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now the master commended the dishonest manager Because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. 
Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a story that Jesus told his disciples. There was a rich man who hired the services of a financial manager to take care of the day-to-day operations of the company. It wasn't abnormal in the first century for a rich CEO to not want to preoccupy himself with all of the daily decisions of running a business. So it wasn't uncommon for him to hire the services of a financial manager. In every case, whenever a rich man hired a financial manager, it was imperative that the wealthy business owner trusted unequivocally the honesty and the decision-making of the financial manager. In our story, Jesus says that uh, negative allegations came up against the financial manager. Allegations of uh, misappropriating funds. So the big boss called him into the big office, called him on the carpet, and said, give me an accounting of how you're handling the books and my money. He investigated and found out that the allegations were true. And then the business owner said to the financial manager, you're fired. Those words shot through him like a lightning bolt. The financial manager thought to himself, now what am I going to do? Now I'm without a job. He had had this cushy managerial job for years. And so now his body was fat and flabby. There was no way he could do manual labor. So he said to himself, I can't go out and dig. He also thought to himself, I guess I could go beg for a minimum wage job. You know, at the local restaurant flipping burgers. No, but this man was far too proud to do something like that. He went back to his office, he slouched in his chair, and he thought to himself, what am I going to do? How how am I going to make ends meet? What am I going to do when my boss kicks me out on the street? And then this manager thought of a brilliant idea. It actually had some merit to it. He thought to himself, I can use my position and my power while I'm still here in the office. And I can win some friendships with the debtors who owe a great deal of money to my master. So that when he kicks me to the curb and I'm out on my keister and I'm out in the street, at least I'll have some friends that will welcome me into their earthly dwellings. He thought to himself, that's a good plan. This just might work. So he called in the first debtor. How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil came the reply. 800 gallons of olive oil. 
It's a pretty extravagant debt. 800 gallons of olive oil is equivalent to 150 olive trees. It was estimated that 150 olive trees was equivalent to 1,000 denarii. A denarius is an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. What the first debtor is saying to the financial manager is, I owe your master a thousand days of debt. That's three years of wages. This is significant. So the financial manager says to that first debtor, I want you to take your bill, sit down quickly and cut it in half. Make it 400 gallons of olive oil. And the man sat there and said, are you serious? 400 gallons of olive from 800 to 400? Boy, you've really saved my neck. I mean, you're a really good friend. I thank you for doing this. Listen, buddy, if you ever need anything, you let me know because I'm good for it. And the financial manager just sat back in his chair. A smirk came across his face. And he said, thanks. I'll keep that in mind. After lunch, he called in the second debtor. How much do you owe my master? A thousand bushels of wheat, came the reply. Now, if 800 gallons of olive oil is an extravagant debt, a thousand bushels of wheat is even greater. It was estimated that a thousand bushels of wheat is equivalent to 2,500 denarii. That's 2,500 days of debt. That's eight years worth of wages. How this man got in that much debt, I don't know. But he, he has that much debt, eight years worth of wages. If he gave the master everything he earned for eight years, it would be only then he would catch up and pay off his debt. But you can't do that because you got to live and you got to have payroll and you got to take care of the overhead and you got to do everything. There's no way this man's ever going to catch up. Eight years worth of wages, a thousand bushels of wheat. So the financial manager said, um, Take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 800 bushels of wheat. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Go ahead. Just do it. Just sit down, mark it through. I'll sign it. I'll authorize it. It goes from 1,000 to 800. Boy, you've really saved my neck. I tell you what, I've been trying to cut corners, been trying to boost productivity I've been trying, but you know the economy the way it is these days. All those talking heads say the economy has rebounded, but I don't see it. Not in my business. It's still as tough today as it has been for the last eight years. I tell you what, you've really helped me out, my friend. You are a good friend to me. If you ever need anything, you let me know because I'm good for it and I'll help you. Once again, a smirk came across the financial manager's face. He said, thanks. I'll keep that in mind. When the big boss heard what the financial manager had done, he praised him. What? That doesn't make any sense. You'd think he'd be outraged. You'd think he'd be incensed. Why in the world does the CEO, the, the, the rich owner, why in the world does he praise the financial manager for cooking the books so liberally? He does because this man acted shrewdly. In fact, Jesus said, That the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. Not only does the business owner seem to praise the financial manager for his shrewdness, but so does Jesus. 
Jesus praises this dishonest manager. Why? Because he acted shrewdly. Now, throughout the years, many people have struggled with this parable. They said, how in the world can Jesus praise something that really sounds and smells pretty unethical? How in the world can Jesus praise this? And so many individuals have talked about this and written about this. Daryl Bach is one of them. And many people agree with Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And he says what the financial manager did was well within his means. Probably what he did is he completely cut his commission or he cut the interest rate or he did a combination of both of those things, all of which the financial manager would have been within his realms to do. For the reason the business owner hired the financial manager was to negotiate the interest rate with all the debtors and to add on top of anything, whatever commission he wanted and he could get to pad his own pocket. Remember, there was no governmental regulations that would tell the financial manager, this is the limit of the commission or this is the highest interest rate you could, uh, you could give. They could do whatever they could do to get away with it. So probably what this manager does is he's very shrewd and he thinks to himself, I'll cut out myself. I'll cut out my commission. I'll reduce the interest rate. My master is still going to get his money. I'm not stealing anything, not embezzling anything from him. He will still get his money, but I'll just cut myself out so that I will be seen better in their eyes so that when I'm out of a job, they'll welcome me into their homes. And because of that, when the master hears what the financial manager did, he says, listen, you're still fired, but I commend you for your shrewdness. And Jesus commended him too. He said, the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with one another than the people of light. What does this word shrewd mean? What does it mean to be shrewd? I mean, I thought God just wanted us to be good. I thought he just wanted us to be devoted. Now he's throwing another word on top of it. Now we've got to be shrewd. What does it mean to be a shrewd disciple of Christ? Well, according to the ancient text, the word shrewd means sensible. Thoughtful, prudent, wise. Jesus praises this man because he was sensible. He was thoughtful. He well thought out his plan. He was prudent. He was wise. He was shrewd. And Jesus commends this as an attribute for all disciples, that that we need to be shrewd like this man was in his story. Have you ever stopped to think about what if, what if God had given the Great Commission to corporate America instead of the church? Because what Jesus is saying is that the, the business model of any culture is far more shrewd than the church. And if that's true, how would corporate America handle the implementation of the Great Commission? I think every business owner Worth his salt would say, well, you got to know your product forwards and backwards, inside and out. You've got to know as much as you can possibly know about your product. And in the Great Commission, what is our product? Our product is the Lord Jesus Christ. And every business model would tell you, you've got to know as much as you can about your product. 
And not only do you have to know a lot about your product, but you also must know a lot about your consumer. Because if you are going to try to sell this product, you got to sell it to consumers, and you've got to know the likes and dislikes, the interests and the hobbies of consumers. So not only must you know your product, but you also have to know your consumer. And every business model I know would say, we've got to hire the best marketing firm. We've got to secure the services of the best advertising agency. Because you can have a great product and you can know your consumers, but you've got to market this thing and you've got to advertise it. And every advertisement works on one assumption. The assumption is you can't live without this product. Every advertisement that you see, every commercial that you see says, men, you can't shave without this razor. Families, you can't go on vacation without going to Disney World. And um, you cannot uh, run anywhere without Reebok. You can't do anything without this product. Every advertisement uh, uh, works under the same assumption, you can't live without this product. And if corporate America was given the Great Commission, I promise you they would know everything they could possibly know about Jesus, the product. They would know everything they possibly could know about the consumer who needs to have him. They would hire the best marketing firm, the best advertising agency. Why? Because they would know we've got to stick the Great Commission on every shelf at Walmart and Target and Publix. We've got to place it in Belk, every mall, every Galleria. We've got to put Jesus everywhere so that every person will know they can't live without him. Friends, is that how the church does the Great Commission? No. We think to ourselves, well, I know a little bit about Jesus, and that's enough. And if we ever have an evangelistic thought that flies through the screen of our mind, we pat ourselves on the back and say, well, at least I tried. If we engage a neighbor in a gospel conversation... We think to ourselves, check it off the box. I've done my responsibility of the Great Commission. And if we just simply invite somebody to church, why don't you go to church with me? We think to ourselves, job well done. I've done everything that I need to do. What Jesus is saying is that the people of this world are far more shrewd in dealings one with another than the children of light. Far more sensible, far more thoughtful, far more prudent And far more wise. Jesus commends this attribute. He commends this attribute of the financial manager because he says this man acted shrewdly. He gives the whole point of the parable in verse 9. The whole point of the parable is given when Jesus says, use your worldly wealth to gain friends so that when that worldly wealth is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus praised the financial manager because he used his position, he used his possessions to win friends so that when his job was gone, he'd be welcomed into earthly dwellings. And Jesus raises the bar just a bit. He says, so in your life, I want you to use your worldly wealth, all your position and all your possessions. I want you to leverage everything that you have. I want you to leverage your worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity so that when life is over, not just the, not just the job is gone, but when life is over, you will be welcomed not in earthly dwellings, but in your eternal heavenly dwelling." 
So you use everything possible at your disposal to leverage the Great Commission, leverage the gospel. You use everything at your disposal so that you can win friends for eternity. This, Jesus says, is acting shrewdly. If you stop and think about it, everything that we have is temporary. All of our possessions, all of our positions is temporary. Our job, our title, our house, our cars, our trucks, our boats, our rods and reels, our fishing, our golf clubs, our bank account, our 401k, our suits, our dresses, our shoes, our purses, our season tickets, everything is temporary. And when you really allow that to sink in, here's the reality. At best, all of us are stewards of a junkyard. That's all we are. We are stewards of a junkyard. Yesterday's mansion becomes today's boarding house and tomorrow's slums. Yesterday's fashion becomes today's hand-me-down and tomorrow's gift to goodwill. All we're doing is we're just stewarding a junkyard. We're just managing it. It just depends on whether we get a hold of it when it's a mansion or a, or a boarding house or a slum. Or whether it's fashionable or a hand-me-down or a gift to goodwill. It's just, at what point do we get the treasure? At what point do we get the stuff? And at the best, all we do is we just, we just are stewards of a junkyard. There were two friends who were watching a funeral motorcade as it was driving down the street. And the one friend said to his buddy, I wonder how much he left behind. And the friend looked at him and said, all of it. He left all of it behind. You can't take it with you. There's no deposit box in that casket. It would seem that the only way you can send it ahead is in the transformed life of an individual. Let me say that again. The only way you can send it ahead is in the transformed life of an individual. So use your position, use your possessions to gain friends for eternity. I wonder, how often do you think about money? Let's just be honest. How often do you think about money? Is it something you think about, you know, once or twice a month when you're paying the bills? Something you think about every day? Something you think about multiple times in the day? Every time you go and, you know, put gas in the car, you think, how in the world is all that money? Every time you go to the grocery store, where in the world is all that money coming from? How often do you think about money? How often do you think to yourself, you know, if I just had a little bit more, life would be so much easier. And you could fill in what a little bit more means. I've talked to people and a little bit more means 50 extra dollars a month. If I had 50 extra dollars a month, I'd be able to breathe easier. If I had a hundred dollars a month, I'd be able to breathe easier. $500 extra a month, I'd breathe easier. A thousand dollars a month extra, I'd breathe easier. Whatever the little bit is, whatever the amount is, if you had just a little bit more, Have you ever had that thought? If I had just a little bit more, life would be so much easier. Just a little bit more. You know, I I wish that God would give me a little bit more. I mean, how many of us have ever gone to the mailbox just hoping and praying? You know, I've heard the stories. I wonder if it's going to come true for me today, right? 
Let's open the mailbox and see, is there any money in there? And you open it two or three times, don't you? Just to see, because God could miraculously put that money in there, right? Anybody ever had those thoughts? And you think to yourself, how foolish am I, right? But many of us, if not all of us, have had certain points of life, maybe we're in that stage of life right now, where you think to ourselves, if we just had a little bit more, life would be so much better. But my question to you is this. Can God trust you with the little bit he's given you already? Because if God can't trust you with the little bit that you have already, why in the world would he give you a little bit more? Jesus says, uh, he who can be trusted with the little can be trusted with much. He who is dishonest with the little will be dishonest with much. So my question is, can God trust you with what he has given you already? And if he can, then maybe he will give you more. But if he can't trust you, if you're, if you're just going to use what he's given you just on yourself, if you're just going to use it in selfish ways for selfish means, if you're just going to use it for, so that you could be more comfortable, then why in the world would he trust you with more? One of the most generous men I have ever met was a World War II colonel by the name of O.D. Hawkins. He was in the first church I ever pastored in Owenton, Kentucky. And O.D. was a generous man. He was generous to the church. He was generous to a Christian institution known as Campbellsville University. He was generous to things like the Red Cross. He was generous to uh, people that would just show up there on his doorstep. One day he took me out to the farm. We were riding on his gator. He loved his gator. We popped over one of those uh, rolling hills in Kentucky, those hills that are so beautiful. And he stopped it, just stared out into the distance. He said, Davin, uh, do you know why God has given me so much? I said, no, O.D., why has God given you so much? And he looked at me and said, because God can trust me with it. He said, years ago, Bessie and me, that's how he always said it, Bessie and me, years ago, Bessie and me made a promise with the Lord. We said, God, um, we will set a ceiling on how much we will spend for ourselves and our family. And anything you give over that, we promise, we'll give to gospel work. The church, other parachurch organizations, he looked at me and said, um, that ceiling that we set was $40,000. He said, we don't owe anything. House is paid for, farm is paid for, cars and trucks are paid for. We don't need a lot. He said, my, my greatest extravagance is to get season tickets to the University of Kentucky football. And he had season tickets. Why? I don't know. Season tickets for the University of Kentucky football. And in fact, he would take us to a game once a year. And every time, and we would park right up front because he'd had them since 1937. And so we, we'd park right up front and we'd walk in and he would look around. He'd always poke me and he would say, what is all this about? Look at all this, all this extravagance, all this waste. He said, but that, that's the one thing that we waste our money on. He said, uh, do you know how much money God gave me last year? And I said, no, D, how much? He said, after we paid all of our taxes, 
we had an income of $90,000. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not great with math, but I can compute this. So you're telling me that last year you and Miss Bessie gave away more than you kept for yourselves? That's right. So you gave away $50,000 because you made a promise to God you'd never spend a ceiling, a penny over $40,000? That's right. And you know, next year we're going to have more money than we had this year? He goes, do you know why I think God keeps giving us more money? I said, because God can trust you. Because I don't know very many people that make good on that promise. Oh, God will understand. I'll fudge a little bit here. I'll just do a little bit else there. God will get it. He'll understand. God's, and OD said, no, no, no. Uh, God trusts me with it. So he intentionally, strategically used his worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity. On October the 9th, 2006, O.D. Hawkins died. I did his funeral. And I can imagine him walking into those pearly gates, streets of gold. And I just have a holy hunch that there were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of thousands of people who he had won for eternity. Whether he knew it directly or indirectly, Yet because he had used his worldly wealth in a shrewd way, he had said, Lord, this belongs to you. So I'm going to give unto you as you have given unto you. You have been generous to me, therefore I must be generous unto you. And O.D. Hawkins, still to this day, one of the most generous individuals I have ever met. On two occasions in our passage, verse 9, verse 11, Jesus calls money worldly wealth. In verse 9, worldly wealth. Verse 11, worldly wealth. What's interesting is that uh, the actual term is unrighteous mammon. Jesus says that there's something inherently unrighteous about money. Now, I've been told the same thing you've been taught. That money is neutral, neither good nor bad. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Haven't you heard that? It's found in Scripture. And so I've been told that, I've been taught that, that that money's just neutral. It's neither good nor bad. Yet here, Jesus calls worldly wealth unrighteous mammon. There's something unrighteous about money. Have you ever stopped to take a look at Andrew Jackson on a $20 bill? He does not look happy. You ever looked at him? I mean, if you got one of these, just at some point, just take it out and look at it. He is not a happy dude. And I think I know why he's not a happy man. If Andrew Jackson could talk, I wonder where he would tell us he's been since being issued by the U.S. Mint. If this $20 bill could talk, where's it been? I wonder if this $20 bill ever changed hands with a young man in a liquor store. I wonder if this $20 bill had ever been tucked in the outfit of a scantily clad exotic dancer. I wonder if this $20 bill, along with some of his friends, ever exchanged hand for a few pills down a dark alley behind a dumpster. I wonder if uh, this $20 bill, along with some others, Ever been placed in a casino, purchased some chips just in the hopes of hitting it big? I wonder where this dollar has been. If this Andrew Jackson could talk, where would he tell me? 
he's been. I think this is why Jackson may not be very happy. And I think this is why that Jesus says that there's something unrighteous about money. It's used for very unrighteous means. What Jesus is saying is be shrewd with your money. Take that which has an unrighteous demeanor to it and make it righteous. Give it to the church. Give it to the advancement of the gospel. Give it to an organization, a ministry that nets salvation of people so that when all this unrighteous mammon is gone, and life is over and you're welcomed into heaven, may there be countless individuals, numerous thousands of people who have been helped because of your generosity. So use your worldly wealth to gain friends for eternity. So how much money are you supposed to give to the church? That's a great question, isn't it? How much money are you supposed to give? Comes with this generosity thing. One of the great ways you can be generous with your resources is to give it to the work of the church, the, a gospel-centered church, a church like this one. So how much money are you supposed to give to the church? The answer is, I don't exactly know. I know that in the Old Testament, there was an equation of, of giving of a tithe, which is the first 10%. I think that's just a baseline, just to be honest with you. Because even in the Old Testament, people were required to give about 20 to 25% of their income to the church. The, the tithe was just that first, that first tithe, that first fruit. And then what was beyond that was the offering. And when uh, people add up all the offerings that were supposed to be given by the average family, average Jewish family to the temple, to the work, it was estimated it was 20 to 25%. When the Apostle Paul comes along and speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he doesn't give a an equation of a certain percentage. He just says, God loves a cheerful giver. That's the only equation he gives. And the word cheerful in the ancient text is hilarious, from which we get the English word uh, hilarious. So our giving ought to put a smile on our face and make us chuckle. It is so extravagant. It is so hilarious. It's like, this is crazy. How much money I'm giving away. Why? Because God has given me everything that I have. I can't outgive God. I just want to give back to him. And that's, that's the imagery of generosity throughout the Bible. So how much do you give? I don't know. C.S. Lewis said, we should give more than we can spare. That our generosity ought to pinch a little bit. That when we give, it ought to hamper us or keep us from doing something else that we want to do. Why? Because we want to be generous unto the Lord. We want to be shrewd with our finances. This is what Jesus talked about. He said, use your worldly wealth. To win friends. So that when that unrighteous mammon is gone. And when life is over. You'll be welcomed. Into eternal dwellings. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What is he saying? He's saying you can't dance to the same, to, to two different songs at the same time. You can't eat at two different restaurants simultaneously. You can't wholeheartedly cheer for two football teams on the same given Saturday. You can't bend the knee at two altars. You cannot worship God and goods. You cannot serve both God and money. This was not a message that set well with the Pharisees. In fact, they hated it. And Jesus said, look, I know that you love money. But what is valued among men is detestable in the sight of God. 
So use your worldly wealth, your positions, your possessions. Use all of that to win friends for eternity. How much of that are you, are you supposed to give? I don't know, but you've got to wrestle with that. You've got to ask the Lord. And I promise you, if you ask, he'll tell you. And I promise you, what he tells you is probably going to scare you to death. Every time I ask him, I have to follow that up with, are you sure about that? Because he'll always want me to give more than I'm willing to give. It's just the way God operates because he knows that generosity is a tool that he uses to make us into the disciples that he wants us to be. So all to Jesus I surrender and all to him I freely give and I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live so I surrender it all. What does it look like for you to surrender it all? Maybe it looks like for you to make a commitment to give a tithe, 10%. You say, Pastor, there's no way I can give 10%. Okay, give 6%. And next year, give 7%. And the following year, give 8%. And the year after that, give 9%. And then you get to 10%. Then you say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to give you 11%. I'm going to give you 12%. You give. But you, you've got to work this out with the Lord. And what God tells you to give, be trustworthy. Do it. Use your positions, use your possessions to win friends for eternity so that when this temporary life is over, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this story. It's a story that's tough. It's a story that is hard to digest, especially in the American culture. But, oh, Father, we pray that this day uh, we will be generous to the God who has been so generous towards us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we give you this invitation. If somebody is here who needs to lay down their heart unto you, let it be done cheerfully and joyfully. If there's somebody here who needs to lay down their wallet, their bank account unto you, let it be done generously and joyfully unto, unto Christ. And, oh, Father, we pray that you will... Pull out of us generosity so that we will be the disciples that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.